Last night, we had an appreciation dinner for the elders and their wives came over to my house and, uh, and Mike cooked for us. I don't know whether you knew this, but Mike used to be a chef, a professional chef, and he cooked us pork tenderloin and asparagus and roasted potatoes. Amazing. And it was one of those meals where you keep eating and you can't eat anymore. And even though you're stuffed, you just have to keep eating because it's so good. And then just when you think you can't do anymore, he brings in this chocolatey fudge stuff that you don't have any room for, but you can't help but eat. And it was glorious. And Revelation 21 is kind of like that. It is a feast. And today it is going to be full all kinds of foods from all different parts of the food groups, that is, different parts of the Bible. And so you may feel at some point that you just get stuffed and you can't do anymore, but you've got to keep eating because it's so good. And that's what we're going to do this morning. You know, it's interesting. Uh, of all of the world religions, Christianity, though, uh, is certainly true and all others are false, has the least amount to say about what awaits us in heaven or in the afterlife. We don't really know what it's going to necessarily look like <clears throat> or feel like. We don't know what the nature of our relationships are going to be. We do know uh, from Jesus's teaching that there won't be any marriage. He says that we will neither be married nor given away in marriage. And the reason for that, as we see in Ephesians chapter 5, is because marriage serves as a shadow of a greater reality to come. It reveals the mystery of the gospel. And so it's not any small thing that when we open up to Revelation 21, what we find is the church. What we find in Revelation 21, according to verse 9, is the bride, the wife of the Lamb, that our marriages, insofar as you see a wife submitting to her husband as the church aims to submit to their Lord Jesus Christ. And you see husbands as Christ laying down their lives for their wife, washing them with the water of the word. What we see in Revelation 21 is a wife that has been washed with the water of the word is entirely pure. That's why I'm calling this sermon the perfect wife. That's what Revelation 21 is about. And what we're going to see is this big idea. <clears throat> it's my sermon in a sentence. The big idea is this, and you have it on the back of your bulletin. And you can follow along with the outline as well. That in the new creation, the bride of Christ will be perfectly glorious, safe, and holy. That in the new creation, the bride of Christ will be perfectly glorious, safe, and and holy. And we're going to see this flesh itself out in three different points. First of all, we're going to see in verses 9 to 11 that we will be glorious. And then we're going to see in verses 12 to 14 that we're going to be safe. Then finally, we'll see in verses 13 through 21, we will be holy. Those verses in 22 all the way through 27 just echo the truths that we find in verses 9 through 21. That's why I have them coupled there in your outline. And everything in this passage, verse 9 all the way to verse 27, is really just an extrapolation of the truths that we saw in verses 1 through 8. Of a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God. 
and of God dwelling with His people. And those people are those who have conquered in Christ. They've been given eternal life, and they have a heritage, an inheritance that is the new heavens and the new earth. And the enemies of God will be judged. There will be no more sin. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. All of the former things have passed away. Verses 1 through 8 are an introduction Verses 9 through 27 are an extrapolation of those handful of verses. It's kind of like a second sermon or a second verse, the same as the first, just with more detail. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Consider our first point here, that we will be glorious. Notice that John opens up. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And he showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God. What John is doing is comparing the church to Babylon. If you glance back a couple pages to chapter 17, what you're going to see is the exact same phrase, the exact same structure of the text. Notice this at the beginning of chapter 17. We're not talking about the new Jerusalem here. We're talking about Babylon. That is the world system and of human civilization that is opposed to God. Then one of the seven angels, verse 1, who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you. Sound familiar? It's the exact same language of Revelation 21. He says, I'm going to show you the judgment of the great prostitute who's seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. And then he carried me away in the spirit. Sound familiar? Same as Revelation 21. Only this time, instead of a high mountain, he carries him into a wilderness. And I saw a woman, just like 21, sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations. Appears beautiful on the outside, but is rotten to the core. Also has the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. You see, we've got parallels happening here, both in Revelation 17 and in Revelation 21. We see that John is taken away by an angel to a place. We see also that in that place, he is given a vision of a city woman, of a city who is also a woman. Babylon, who is a prostitute. And now we see the new Jerusalem, who is the bride of Christ his wife. And when each vision ends, John, we see in 17, we didn't go there. He ends up trying to worship the angel and he gets rebuked. We see John doing the exact same thing in Revelation 22. And we're meant to see that these parallels go together. It's a compare and a contrast. What John is doing is comparing the first woman with the second woman. And this second woman in Revelation 21 is unlike the first woman because, as we'll see, the second woman is like Jesus. He says, I saw, or he took me away, and I saw the holy city Jerusalem, verse 10, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God 
its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Revelation 21 is full of imagery, just like much of the book. And we shouldn't take much of it literal, though there will be a literal and physical new creation. This is imagery that is all pointing to the glory of the bride of Christ when God fulfills His promises according to the gospel. And here he says that I see the bride. I see the wife of the Lamb. Who is that bride and who is this wife? She is the holy city Jerusalem coming from God. And she has the glory of God. And look at how he describes it. The radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. The second woman is unlike the first woman, that is Babylon, because the second woman is like Jesus. In fact, if you go back to Revelation chapter 4, what we see is the one seated on the throne, that is Jesus, the exalted Christ. And listen to this. He had, according to Revelation 4, the appearance of Jasper, and that before his throne, it was a sea of glass like crystal. This bride is just like the one who sits on the throne. So the church is going to have the glory of God. The same glory that emanates from the exalted Christ is going to emanate from his bride. It's just like, you may remember Moses coming down from Sinai in Exodus 34. His face was glowing, and it wasn't a fake bake. He had been in the presence of God, and his face shone. And the text says literally, quote, he had been talking with God. But then when he comes down, Moses ends up, you remember, had to veil his face. Because under the old covenant, the glory of God produced fear. Everybody was afraid of Moses. He was afraid of the glory of God reflected in his face. Oh, but Paul, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says that you and I, we have beheld a greater glory in Christ in the gospel. That the glory of God revealed in the law of Moses brought fear. But Paul says the glory of God revealed in the gospel of Christ brings freedom. Only Moses' face was transformed by God's glory. And it had to be veiled. But in Christ, we all, every single believer with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That in the gospel, we are beholding the glory of Christ. Oh, but listen, we don't just behold his glory. We are, according to the Apostle Paul, becoming his glory. The Spirit is right now in this very moment for every single one who is united to Christ in his church. He is transforming us into the image of Christ. And right now that transformation is from one degree to another. But one day that transformation, Paul says, is going to be complete. And that's what we see in Revelation 21. That the former things have passed away and we reflect the radiance of the glory of God like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. We look like Jesus. But I want you to notice that this glory doesn't come from us. Verses 22 and 23, who does it come from? The glory is from the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. That is who is giving off this this radiance, this light. 
So the sun is our source of light, and the moon gives light by reflecting the sun. But in the new creation, the glory of God will be the source of the light. And his glory will be reflected in the church to such a degree that the sun and the moon aren't even going to be needed anymore. You got to see that Revelation has the most exalted view of the church in heaven, but it also has the most realistic view of the church on earth. If you were to go back to the beginning of the book, for instance, in Revelation 2 and 3, you'll find John's letters or letters to the seven churches. And in those letters, in the variety of churches, you see some good things and you see some bad things. Some of them had good doctrine. Some of them were really loving toward other people. But you also find that the churches that loved doctrine stopped loving one another. And you found that the welcoming and hospitable churches grew soft and undiscerning and invited in error. The big, flashy, impressive churches like Sardis were impressive on the outside, but they were dead on the inside. There was no spiritual vitality. The rich churches like Laodicea became worldly and apathetic, and the text says, made Jesus want to puke. I'm going to spew you out. On top of that, there's persecution, and there's false teachers, and there's all other kinds of opposition to the gospel, and that is what churches are like, including North Point Church. For every 50 good things that we do, by God's grace, we could easily name 50 things that we could be doing better. How do we have unity in our church without demanding unanimity? Where is it that we can agree to disagree, and how can we even begin to work that out? How do we work out the realities of our diversity? What do we do when our biographies and our ethnicities don't match? What do we do when it seems like sometimes on really important issues, we're just talking past each other? We've got organizational issues. We've got structural changes that need to occur, and it seems like the... Like the structures for our ministry are always behind the demands of our ministry. We've got cliques, and that's nothing unique to us. Anytime you get 100 people together, there's always going to be groups that form within that group. And much of the time, people don't even seem to notice or to do anything. And so singles latch on to singles, and marrieds latch on to marrieds, and married with Kids latch on to one another, but really the younger kids with the younger kids and the older kids with the older kids. And, and we even in our churches build ministries around each one of those demographics so that we can all huddle together. There are people here who think that perhaps we're too lax on certain issues. And no doubt there are people here that think that if we get any tighter on issues, our heads are going to pop off. How do we deal with that? How do we love each other? How do we live together? How do we talk about these things? Because we don't always communicate well. Our small groups have to improve. Our pastors have got to get better. Our preaching has to be better and possibly even a few minutes shorter. 
And then there's the ongoing work of campus ministry and community evangelism and missions. And we haven't got all of those things nailed down. And then what are we going to do with our youth and our children? And how are we going to help equip our parents to raise their kids? We can always be doing more and better with our equipping classes. And we've got to figure out how to navigate our finances as a church when our giving and our budget don't seem to get along. We've had to remove members from our church because of unrepentant sin. And there will come a day, no doubt, in this age where we will have to do it again. The parking lot's a little sketchy. The building's a little old. And this is real life. And we haven't even gotten into your individual fears and your individual insecurities and all of the ways that you've sinned this morning and all of the ways that I've already sinned this morning. We haven't gotten into any of that. And that's the church. That is who we are. But that is not who we are becoming. That is not who we will be. We are already right now, according to the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 2, seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Positionally speaking, we already have the glory of Christ. But realistically, we don't have it yet. But this is where God is bringing us. Like a good husband... Christ is washing us clean with his word so that he might present us holy and blameless. North Point Church, oh, listen to me. You are going to be glorious. And Christ is reminding us from his word this morning, this is what I am working on. I am making all things new. This is my agenda. This is where I'm taking you. You are going to be a glorious bride. But that's not the least of it. You're also going to be a safe bride. That's what we see in verses 12 to 14. Notice there at the beginning of verse 12 that this new Jerusalem had a great high wall. Every successful king in the Old Testament built a wall. The book of Nehemiah was all about a wall. But here, we're not talking about a literal wall. We're talking about a figurative wall. It represents the invincibility of God's plan through the ages. And we see that in the verses that follow. That on this wall had 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And at the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates. And on the north, three gates. And on the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. Gates all around. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles. We're going to see here the building materials for the wall. And notice that the wall's building materials include 12 gates named after the 12 tribes of Israel, and the foundations are named after the 12 apostles. God's plan has always been to bring in people from all nations into one household. This household is being built on the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone, the blueprint for God's building plan is Christ Jesus himself. God is building his church on the apostles and the prophets so that we look like Jesus. That's Revelation 21. 
And we see this further in the image of the gates in verse 25. Look at that. It says here that that the gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. And they, speaking of the nations and the kings of the earth, will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. God's plan for Israel wasn't ultimately for Israel, but for the nations. But Israel failed to keep that covenant. Jesus Christ came to fulfill Israel's destiny. He is the true Israel. And as the true Israel, Christ has abolished the old covenant that, shut, that kept the gates shut and kept the nations out. And he has established with his death a new and a better covenant that has opened the gates and now through the proclamation of the apostolic gospel is inviting the nations in. That is what we see in Revelation 1. Is the perpetuity and the indestructibility and the invincibility of God's plan to build for himself one people through all ages for his glory. Built on the prophets that come from Israel and of the apostles and the nations coming in to bring glory and praise and honor to the Lord God Almighty and to the Lamb. Think about how much of our world is affected because we can't trust each other. We buy locks, we build fences. We own dogs. We go through security at airports. We require police officers and we need lawyers. But in the new creation, the gates will never be shut because every threat has been vanquished and every enemy destroyed. The only people who will come through the gates are the kings of the nations to give glory to the prince of peace. Isn't that the security we all really want? Isn't that the reason that so many Christians are willing to abandon their faith for the American dream because they need to feel secure? Isn't that really what we long for when perhaps some of us more wise and experienced types in here. Look back at an older day when you didn't have to lock your doors or have alarms on your cars. We want to be secure. We ask, will I have enough money to pay the bills? We ask, is this illness ever going to get better? Are my friends and my family going to be okay? And the reality is that nothing but death is guaranteed in this life. And that's a sobering and a fearful fact. We have lots of good reasons in this world to feel insecure and unsafe. But according to God's plan, his invincible, indestructible plan, the son of God took on flesh and blood so that, quote Hebrews 2, so that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver all those through the fear of death, we're subject to lifelong slavery. And in the new creation, that plan 
is complete. There is no more death. There are no tears. There is no night. And the gates never shut. All will be safe in the light of the Lord God Almighty and of the Lamb who was slain. That is that not what we long for. God has promised it in Christ. So we will be a glorious bride. And we will be a safe bride. But we will also be a holy bride. That's what we see in verses 15 to 21. As we noted above, verse 11 that the new Jerusalem, the glorified church, will have the glory of God. And having the glory of God means reflecting the holiness of God. You and I were chosen by the Father in the Son for this purpose, that He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world. Why? Here's the reason. So that you would be holy and blameless before Him. You were saved to be set apart as holy. The goal of your salvation is holiness. To be presented before the Father by the Son as an adorned bride, holy and blameless. And we're going to see a couple of things. Verses 15 through 17 are going to show us the measurements of our holiness. And then in verses 18 to 21, we're going to see the materials of our holiness. We're going to see the measurements of our holiness, and we're going to see the materials of our holiness. And these are heavenly measurements, and these are heavenly materials. Consider first the measurements of our holiness. Verses 15 to 17. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And then he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. And he also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. And that's just to clue you in that these are heavenly measurements. These are heavenly images. These are heavenly realities that we're not to take them as literally as what we might be prone to take them. They're imaging greater things. And the first thing that we notice is all kinds of twelves everywhere. We saw 12 tribes of Israel in verse 12. We saw the 12 apostles in verse 14. They were related to 12 gates. 12 plus 12 equals 24. And that number 24 symbolizes the totality of God's people across both covenants. That's why we see 24 elders worshiping the Lamb in Revelation 4 and in Revelation 5. These elders represent the totality of God's redeemed people. 12 tribes of Israel plus 12 apostles equals 24. That is the number of the true Israel. But we see more. There's 12 gates in verse 12. Those 12 gates were 12 pearls in verse 21. In verse 20, there are 12 stones. The city measures 12,000 stadia, and its wall is 144 cubits. That is 12 by 12. In fact, if you add up all the 12s in this vision from verses 9 to 27, you would count up 12 12s, including the two 12s that make 144. 
But then look at verse 16. What's more is this new Jerusalem is symbolically shaped like a cube. It says its length and width and height are equal. How many edges are there on a cube? Answer, 12. There are 12 edges to a cube. And each one of these edges is 12,000 stadia long. 12 edges times 12,000 equals 144,000. And 144,000 is also symbolic for the totality of God's redeemed people. And that's what we see in Revelation 7. Why is this important? Why did I just take you to a math lesson? Because... Like much of Revelation 21, the numbers aren't literal, but they're symbolic. The totality of God's redeemed people from both the Old and the New Testament will all be holy as God is holy. Verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The bride of Christ will not have a single blemish or a single drop of impurity. We will be the perfect wife. And that's what we see in the heavenly materials of verses 18 to 21. Look at the bookends of the section in verses 18 and 21. We notice in verse 18 that this wall, oh, it's like pure gold, like clear glass. And then we see the same thing at the end of verse 21. The street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Those are forming the bookends of this section. And the emphasis is on our purity. To have God's glory is to reflect his moral majesty. We will be perfectly pure. There will be no blemish. And in verses 19 and 20, we are to understand the purpose of all of these stones in light of this purity. Look at verse 19. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And you're going to notice 12 of them. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysopris, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. In these precious stones, what we see is a new Eden. In Ezekiel chapter 28... Ezekiel describes the king of Tyre and what he looked like. He says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. Not all of them translate completely, perhaps lost in translation. And they were crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. Some people think that Ezekiel is using the king of Tyre as a symbol for the devil and his fall. I happen to think that Ezekiel is using the king of Tyre as a symbol of Adam and his pre-fall glory. Either way, Ezekiel talks about Eden as the glory, as the garden of God. And he describes God's original creation as being made up of all of these precious stones. And now in Revelation 21, we have a new creation, a new and better Eden that's described in the exact same way. God has restored the glory of his creation. 
Only he didn't just go back to Eden. He has made a better Eden. Do you remember what God commissioned Adam to do? He was to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. That is, to fill it with his glory, the glory of image bearers, those who would reflect his glory all over the world. Did Adam do it? No. He fell short. Sin came into the world, but a second Adam came. And that through him... And through the multiplication of his people, through the proclamation of the gospel, the world is beginning to fill with the glory of God and his true image bearers that are reflecting the image of Christ in the world. That is the church. And here in Revelation 21, we see an even better Eden. We see an Eden as God had envisioned it through the faithful stewardship of the first Adam who failed, but has now been brought back and recapitulated through the second Adam who is faithful. God has restored the glory of his creation. It's a new Eden. But that's not all. The symbolism doesn't stop there because these 12 jewels symbolically form a priestly breastplate. Israel's high priest wore a breastplate whenever he went into the Holy of Holies where the glory of God dwelled. And that breastplate had the same 12 jewels that we see here. And each jewel had on it the name of one of Israel's 12 tribes. It was over the heart of the high priest, so to speak. And the high priest would wear this breastplate as he went into the inner sanctuary, that is the Holy of Holies, where the glory of God dwelt in a cloud. And he's the only one who was able to do so. He had to be a pure high priest wearing this breastplate with all of these jewels to, to dwell in the presence of God. And this is all according to God's instruction. And what may seem really random when you go back to the law what we discover, like much of the law, is all a blueprint for the reality of heaven. That's why when you get to Hebrews chapter 8, we see the author of Hebrews telling us how Moses had to copy the instructions exactly for the temple because it was an image of heaven on earth. All of it was pointing and symbolizing and looking forward to greater realities. And so was the breastplate. Twelve stones, twelve tribes, all on the heart of a high priest. But now what we see in Revelation 21 is the entirety of God's new Eden wearing a priestly breastplate, so to speak, and dwelling as a priest in the unmediated presence of the glory of God. The whole cosmos is a priest to God. The whole new creation is able to enjoy the presence of the glory of God without mediation. And the glory of God is not confined to any one particular place, but it permeates the whole cosmos. We don't need priests anymore because we dwell in the light of the glory of the Lord God Almighty and of the Lamb. But all of this, of course, is part of a bigger image that we find in Revelation 21, and that is the image of a temple. That's why it's appropriate for Revelation 21 to picture God's bride city, that is the new Jerusalem, as a temple. What was the temple under the old covenant? You remember? It was the place where God dwelt among his people. 
In Exodus 22, God says to the nation that I will meet you there. Where? At the temple, tabernacle. In one sense, God is omnipresent. That is, he is present everywhere, always. But there's another sense in which God's presence was in the temple in a special way. And so we keep in mind that the special presence of God's glory was all according to the promises of the covenant, and that is that I will be your God and you will be my people. That's what we saw last week in verse 3 at the beginning of Revelation 21. He will dwell with them as their God. And so while God is in fact present everywhere always, he's present in a unique sense with his people in the temple because of promises that he's made according to covenant. Well, God's presence dwelled in the form of a glory cloud over the Ark of the Covenant in the inner sanctuary, which was also called the Holy of Holies. And 1 Kings chapter 6 reveals that the inner sanctuary was a perfect cube, and it was overlaid with gold. There's only one other place in all of the Bible that you find a perfect cube overlaid with gold, and it's Revelation 21. What does this mean? That in the new heaven and earth, we will not enter the holy of holies. We will become the holy of holies. That's amazing. And that's exactly what Ezekiel saw. In Ezekiel chapter 40, the spirit takes Ezekiel away to a high mountain, just like we see with John here in Revelation 21, it's almost the exact same language as if God intended it that way. Giving us clues for where to go in the Bible to understand what we're seeing. Well, in Ezekiel chapter 40, the Spirit takes Ezekiel away to a high mountain just like John here. And the Spirit shows Ezekiel a temple just like John. And the Spirit then shows him a bunch of measurements in chapters 41 and 42. It's kind of mind-numbing reading, but it's there and it's inspired by God. Then in chapter 43, Ezekiel sees the glory of the Lord return to the temple. It had left all the way back in chapter 11 because of Israel's disobedience to the covenant. But now he sees a vision, a future vision of God's glory and of his presence coming back into the temple. And in chapter 48, at the very end of the vision, we have the final part. And God says this, it's the last word of the vision. The name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. That's what John sees. John sees the fulfillment of Ezekiel's temple vision. That in fact now in this new heavens and this new earth, in this new and better Eden, the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what Ezekiel saw. That's what John saw. And in light of Christ... That's what we hope and long for. That's what we look forward to. But this future glorious day in Revelation 21, we need to be reminded, has already been inaugurated today. We are living in the middle of the already and the not yet. It has already been inaugurated. That's Christmas. And it's not yet consummated. That comes at the return of Christ, the second advent. 
That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 that we are the temple of the living God, 2 Corinthians 6. That's why the Apostle Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 2, that we are like living stones being built up. You hear the progressive language? We are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We will not yet one day become the temple of God. We are, as the church, the temple of God, and God's presence dwells with us through His Holy Spirit. That is who we are now. That's not just what we're looking forward to. That is who we are. It's an already, and it's a not yet. Because God's presence with the church has not yet filled the earth. We are the temple of God in a world that is hostile to God. We are the holy city of Revelation 11. You can go back and read that later this afternoon. That holy city of Revelation 11 is also the vulnerable woman with a child in Revelation 12. And the dragon wants to destroy us and Babylon wants to deceive us. And what we see in Revelation 11 and 12 is that we are both invincible and yet vulnerable. We will be persecuted, but we will persevere. And in Revelation 21, we see this holy city come on stage again. Only there's no more vulnerability. There's only invincibility. Because God's promises cannot be broken. When Jesus was with his disciples, they were asking him, what does the kingdom look like? What, how does the kingdom work? Because it didn't look anything like what they thought it was supposed to look like. They're looking around and they see large swaths of people that want to use Jesus but not worship him. And then they see others who want to kill him. And this band of true faithful followers is really small. And so they're kind of looking at it going, if you're really the Messiah, if you really are the one who has been promised to bring in the kingdom of God, why doesn't it look like it? And then he remember, he teaches them in parables. He says, the kingdom of God has been hidden from those in the world. And he says, with what should we compare the kingdom of God? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which is sown in the ground, and it is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. It is so small, you'll be tempted to overlook it. It is so small, you'll be tempted to underestimate it. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all of the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in his shade. That is Revelation 21. It's the new heavens and the new earth. North Point Church, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Don't underestimate the power of the gospel of the kingdom. We may seem small and insignificant compared to Babylon. And the dragon 
can seem so fierce and so strong that we wonder if he will ever be defeated. And we can feel overwhelmed and small and insignificant in the shade of all of this, just like the grain of a mustard seed. We may feel vulnerable in this world. But the gospel is the most powerful force in the universe. It cannot be defeated. It is indestructible. It is indefatigable. It will never tire. It is invincible. It will not stop. And it will not be thwarted until all of God's plans are fulfilled in the nations. It will not stop until the knowledge of the glory of God fills the whole earth as the water fills the seas. Of course, the image there is, is there any part of the sea that isn't watery? The answer is no, the whole sea's watery. That's what the glory of God is going to be like in the new creation. It looks like a mustard seed now, the kingdom of God. It looks insignificant. You'll be tempted to overlook it. You'll be tempted to underestimate it. But by the power of the gospel, through the power of Christ, all of God's invincible purposes will come to pass. And on that day, Babylon and the beast and the dragon will be gone and we will be forever glorious and we will be forever safe and we will be forever holy as God is holy. And so until that day, we say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus.